If you have a copy of God's Word with you, please turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Acts 4, 32, we'll read through chapter 5, verse 14. We've been looking at the opening chapters of the book of Acts uh, most of the last few weeks. We had several weeks where we had a little, little diversion there, looked at some other passages, but Acts 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, Feel free to grab the black book in the pew, uh, the, the chair rack in front of you there. Turn to page 912. You can also open to the inside cover of the bulletin there to find the, the scripture text there. Without further ado, let's hear now, <clears throat> excuse me, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. In great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes, both men and and women. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. Acts 4 is Satan's worst nightmare, but it's followed by one of his most sneaky attacks. 
We should probably expect that though, right? If we are not ignorant of his schemes, as 2 Corinthians says, Satan had, you might say, a bad day in Acts 4. The apostles are arrested. The Holy Spirit helps them. They're ultimately freed. And then they, they don't gripe. They don't complain. They praise God spontaneously. All of Satan's tricks can't stop them from praising God. So instead, Satan capitalized on their success. He made one family jealous and greedy, tried to destroy the church from within, but that didn't work either. Today's story, it starts with great power, great grace, and ends with great fear. God being glorified, his church continuing to grow, and in between there is great witnessing, great generosity, and a great deception. You see a church... You see that the church is a glorious mess, full of sin you can't hide, salvation we can't earn, and the Holy Spirit's presence that you simply can't miss. Should this be our last sermon in the book of Acts? See, unless God changes my mind, we're going to look at Genesis for a few weeks starting next Sunday. Is this the right note to end on? Explosive church discipline, divine summary judgment, hypocrisy that we can't hide. I think it's perfect because as much as the acts of the apostles, which are really the acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, as much as it encourages us, much as it excites us, we also need to know that God's grace can get us through the muck and mire and messiness of church life. Everyone and their brother knows the church isn't perfect. Some use that as a weapon. We even understand why. Many have been hurt by the church. We need to know that even if we aren't directly responsible. We need to know the church isn't perfect. Rather than hiding it, rather than trying to explain it away, let's let's embrace it. Let's show the world how God's amazing grace can redeem the mess. Hypocrisy, lying, deception, all here. But so is the humongous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. In this passage, we see a holy God who purifies his church, who purges their impurity and empowers them all the more. Look at it with me. We've got four points this morning. Just a warning. Point three is the longest. Point number one, great power. Great power. We see it in chapter four, verses 32 to 35. Read verse 32 with me. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common of one heart and soul. There's unity. Persecution led to unity. The same thing happened back in verse 24. They heard about this bogus imprisonment of Peter and John, and they they raised their voices together. Persecution also led to purity. It also led to the power of the Spirit manifested among them, well, the rest of the verse says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, is Luke describing the generosity of the early church? Or is he prescribing it? Is he commanding it to us? Is he, is he telling all of us what, he once, what Jesus once told the rich young ruler? Go sell all your possessions. Now, kids, you can write your answers down now. You can ask your parents to do the same. We're going to come back to that question. We'll say this much for now. He is at least describing the generosity 
of the early church, right? Is he doing more? Wait and see. Generosity was one of the fruits of the Spirit for the early church. What other evidences of the Spirit's work do we see? Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Why do all the outline points this morning have great in them? Well, because Luke, Luke did it. He, he outlined this section for us practically using this word great over and over again. With great power, they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. When God's people are filled with the Spirit or with great power, which comes from the Spirit, this is what they do. So this is what we should pray for, this type of power to testify to God's grace, to testify to the resurrection life, the life more abundant and free, that God might give us words, that he might give us the desire to see our friends and loved ones come to Christ, that he might use that desire so that we would study the word, so that we would study our friends, our loved ones. What word does this friend need to hear this morning? Now on that note, Pastor Josh and a small team are talking about how we as a church can engage our community right now. We've got plans and possibilities. You'll hear more about it, uh, particularly when the ministry fair rolls around right right as school is starting back up. Plans and possibilities to engage our community, things like evangelism training, trying to find the best ways to share the gospel, knowing the the likely thoughts and objections of our culture around us. And I, I think all that's important. We need to be careful. We need to be thoughtful. All those things. Same time, maybe I'm just a simple kind of man who likes simple pleasures like chocolate cake and whatnot because the, the words of the late D. James Kennedy also resonate with me. He once said, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way you don't. Let that one sink in for a moment. Now, one caveat here, remember what Peter said elsewhere. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, he says. Evangelizing, sharing the gospel of God's grace, it is better than not evangelizing, amen. But do it, gentleness and respect. Be bold enough to speak the truth, be compassionate enough to do it, to speak the truth in love. It's what happens when God's great power is poured out on the church. Let's pray that he would do that, that he pour out his great power on us. But it's not just great power, great words that, that pour out of God's people in this passage. Verse 33 talks about great power and great grace. Great grace, that's our second point. Verses 33 to 37 Verse 33 ends, great grace was upon them all. What are we talking about? Are we talking about a amazing grace kind of stuff here? They once were lost, but now they're found. They once were blind, but now they see there's great grace upon them. The kind that saved a wretch like me. Yes, it's that, but it's more. It's also the grace that taught my heart to fear to fear God, to walk in his ways, the the grace that leads us home, that causes us to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, grace can find you. It can pursue you. It can overtake you wherever you are. But grace doesn't leave you where you are. It changes you. 
It remakes you into what God created you to be. When God created man, he placed Adam and Eve in paradise. They had no needs, no wants, because they had everything you could possibly want. And in Acts 4.33, Jesus is continuing to recreate the people of God into what they were originally intended to be. What does Luke tell us right after this, right after the great grace was upon them all? He, he reemphasizes his first point, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. By the way, Luke is alluding to Deuteronomy 15.4. God had commanded Israel there. There shall not be a needy person among you. So is this, Luke 4, is it a command? Is it a prescription? Or is it merely a description? Kids, I have good news for you. This is not telling you that you have to go home and sell all your favorite toys. It's not what's going on. Parents don't necessarily have to sell their prized possessions either. This passage does not outlaw private property. It assumes in several places the right of private property. So does later biblical passages, ones that are written later, a few decades later. 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy to instruct rich people to be generous for God's sake. So no, you don't have to go home and sell everything. But, one author says, we should not, however, take comfort too quickly in this fact. Oh no, you may be thinking, who is Matt quoting? What is he going to say next? Do I still have to listen to him if he's quoting some crazy liberal socialist or communist? What if I'm quoting Dr. Dennis Johnson, PCA pastor, respected scholar and professor who is not only related to some of our church members, but also preached from this pulpit during Pastor Stephen's ordination service a couple years ago. What about then? He also says, in some ways, mandatory communalism would be easier. Pure communalism would simplify the struggles of conscience over money and what it can buy. Acts, however, points us to a more difficult form of financial fellowship or koinonia, which probes our motives and never lets us shift responsibility to others. When should I give? How much should I give? Hard questions to answer. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had rules and guidelines and all these things? How are these for guidelines? Paul says, consider the grace of our Lord, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, one chapter later, he says, each one must give, excuse me, each one must give, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Communalism might be easier, but this isn't communalism. This is a church that's so full of grace, they can't help but give when a need arises. In verses 36 and 37 give us a particular example, don't they? Verse 36, thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I grew up hearing stories about Barnabas. My Christian school had a Barnabas award. Did you know that wasn't his real name? Sometimes I forget. I won't lie. And by the way, lying is bad. We'll talk about that later. But Barnabas, also known as son of encouragement, the nicest guy ever, moved by God's grace to sell a field, to give the profit to the apostles so that they could do whatever they needed with it, so that they could help the most needy. May God's grace make us generous like this. And it already has. Now, I'm not the treasurer. I don't see the checks. But you know, once in a while, I get asked to deliver an envelope in secret. Someone who wants to do a kind deed wants to remain anonymous, and I get to be the messenger. So I can say that great grace is upon this church. Barnabas-level grace? I'm not sure. But grace that leads to generosity? Yes, it's there. I pray that there'd be even more. As I said, this is in many ways Satan's worst nightmare. The church acting like the church should. Christians imitating Christ, pouring themselves out for others. So how would Satan respond? Well, he would fill someone's heart with a great deception. That's our third point. A great deception. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. No, that phrase is not... In the, uh, in the text this morning, that's the only one that's not a direct, uh, the only outline point that's not directly from the text, but I think it summarizes what we see here, a great deception. How did it start? Did Ananias say, I wish someone would give me a nickname, like son of encouragement? Don't know. Don't know if he used that tone of voice, but hold that thought. In verses one and two, it says, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Sold, brought, laid at the apostles' feet. That's what verse 34 said. Lots of people did this. It's what verses 36 and 37 said. Barnabas did this. And it's almost... What chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Ananias and Sapphira almost did this. They sell the property, but they brought only a part of it. They kept back some of the proceeds, kept back. It's a rare Greek word. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the story of Achan. That's the guy who stole the devoted things in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, which led to a crushing defeat for Israel after a period of prolonged success. Plenty of parallels to Achan, but let's focus on Ananias. Verse 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. His sin is not simply greed. It's deception. Lying to the Holy Spirit. By the way, how does Peter know that he lied? Well, how was he able to heal the lame man just a chapter ago? 
You see, for some reason, God gifted Peter, the apostle, with extraordinary insight, with extraordinary other gifts as well during this extraordinary time in the church. You see the point, Ananias didn't have to sell it. He didn't even have to give all of the money after he sold it. He just needed to be honest. He didn't have to lie. He didn't have to imply that he was more generous than he really was. And why did he do all this? Maybe he didn't believe that God could reward an honest man, a man who was less generous than Barnabas. Or maybe he didn't believe that others would think highly of him if he was honest about the extent of his generosity. Is God pleased with loaves and fishes of obedience that we bring? What if Ananias had been faithful with little, with with the little that he could afford? What if he had been honest? And it's not just that he lied to the people, to Peter, to the others. He lied to God, as Peter said. And so, verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now let's start with what not to do, how not to respond to this. Kids, you can listen up again. I'm going to give your parents some parenting advice. You can make them repeat this when, when you get home. Parents, do not make the primary lesson that lying is bad, okay? Do not imply or make your kids wonder that the next time they lie, this might happen, okay? Agreed? Not saying I was ever done to me. I'm just saying that seems like a bad way we could apply that. But what is the point here? This is what sin deserves. And anything less is God's grace. This is what sin deserves. And anything less than that from the hand of God is his grace to us. This is a preview of God's perfect justice, which he will give on the final day. You remember the lame man who was healed a couple stories ago? See, he's a preview of God's perfect restoration. When sickness, sorrow, pain, and death will be felt and feared no more. And this, Ananias and Sapphira, they're a preview of God's perfect retribution. The way he will right every wrong and purge the evil from our midst. And God gives this preview as the kingdom of God is advancing upon new territory once again, just like he did with Achan and Joshua. Ananias thought he could fool God. Same way he could fool men and women. Surely some were fooled till Peter said what he said. Surely men and women are fooled today. You know, when we examine new members in the church, we don't say, we know this person is born again. That's not the way we say it. We say this person has a credible profession of faith. <laughs> they talk and act like Christians as far as we can tell. We cannot see the hearts and motives of others. Of course, God can. Who knows their children's catechism? Does God know all things? Yes, nothing can be hid from God. Dennis Johnson says, God, the consuming fire, destroys deception on contact. Yes, lying is bad. And God, who is pure truth, he never lies. He's incapable of lying. He loves us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves and about him. 
And again, the truth is that this is what all sin deserves. What happens to Ananias would be fair. And though this is not God's normal way of operating, in other words, every sin does not result in instant death. Though it's not his normal way, we should not forget what he is capable of and we should not forget what our sin deserves. Romans 6.23, many of you know it, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I saw an old friend at General Assembly. I said, how you doing? He responded the same way he always does. Better than I deserve. Cliched, sure, but true. As it is for all of us. Every day that God doesn't give us an Ananias response is a day when God treats us better than we deserve, when God is patient with us. Romans 2 reminds us God's kindness or his patience. It's meant to lead us to repentance. Ananias and Sapphira, they engaged in a great deception. But for the grace of God, there go I, there go all of us. And that leads to our fourth and final point, great fear. Great fear. You see it in verses 5 through 14. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it, who heard of it. Of course, the story isn't over yet, right? Three hours later, Sapphira comes. Somehow she hasn't heard what's happened. And so Peter in verse 8, he gives her a chance to come clean. She doesn't. And so in verse 9, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Same thing. Some commentaries clarify Peter is not striking them dead as he speaks these words. The the cause of it's a pronouncement of, of God's judgment and they speculate about the cause of death. It's massive shock and guilt and all these things. Again, simple kind of man. I just assume God struck them down. If we don't believe he can do that, we have bigger problems. If, we, if we're shocked that he would do that, maybe we don't understand how bad our sin is. If our God is too small, our view of his holiness is too small, we might assume that our sin is a small thing as well. But if our sin is heinous, is brazen, is big, and by the way it is, Isn't the gospel of God's grace even bigger? Isn't his grace even bigger? Now, related to that, people wonder whether Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven. James Boyce says, true Christians do not lose their salvation by sinning. True. Praise the Lord for that. By the way, he is not sure about these two and their eternal state. He's just saying true Christians don't lose their salvation by sinning. It's a good thing. Another author discourages us from going down that road too far. Were these, were they true Christians? Are they in heaven? It's not the point. The point is that God used this incident to to show us what all sin deserves, to show us his grace, that he doesn't do this every moment that we sin. The point is that God used this incident to bring great fear upon the church a fear that led to reverence and worship, a fear that led to generosity, gratitude for his grace. Look at verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church 
and upon all who've heard of these things. See, the end result is not what Satan wanted. They feared God. They don't treat him lightly. They don't approach him casually. They fear him. They understand that he is holy. He's a consuming fire. And rather than running from him, from this consuming fire, they're drawn in all the more. Did you notice verse 14? More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Last week, I asked us whether we needed to pray for persecution so that we could be more unified as a church. That's half serious. This week, I'm asking if we need more church discipline, more fear of God to jumpstart our church growth plan. Now, I hope you'll forgive my irreverence. No one wants to see a repeat of Ananias and Sapphira, not now, not on the final day, but it is a preview. It's an instructive one. It's a preview. It's a warning. It's a gracious one to remind us what all sin deserves to remind us what amazing grace God shows every single day when he holds back his righteous wrath against sin. It's to show us as well that there is no perfect church, but there is a perfect Christ, a perfect substitute who not only stood in the gap for sinners like us to shield us from God's wrath, but also poured out his spirit on this glorious mess that we call the church. And in the church, there will be times of great power proclaiming the truth for a world that needs to hear it. There will be great grace, evidence of his grace to us, seen in our grace and our generosity to others. There will be great deceptions. Happened in the early church. God was not fooled then. He's not fooled now. And while he may show us previews of judgment, he will often show us patience. Instead, giving us a chance to repent. And in the end, we pray that the church will be known for its great fear. It's great fear. A reverence for God, our consuming fire. A gratitude for God's great restraint. Great fear. That may not sound splashy. Maybe that's not what you came to church for this morning. Great fear. I'd simply say, don't knock it till you try it. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Oh Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know the joy of fearing you, show them now. If there's anyone here who's forgotten it, remind us now. Help our unbelief. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we just said, if we don't know this fear, show it to us. Draw us in. Father, if we've forgotten it, draw us one more time. If you've drawn us to yourself a thousand times, oh Lord, draw us again. Draw us again. Show us your goodness and grace. May it be the same joy that we knew the hour we first believed. Father, thank you for your son, our savior, the one who lived a holy, perfect, righteous life, something we could never do, not in our wildest dreams, something we are so grateful for. And so, Father, through faith in his name, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, 
would you help us to lay hold by faith of all your precious promises to us? We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.